This is Mitchell McLam, lead pastor of Sapona Road Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina. We're so excited you found our podcast. Our prayer is that you're blessed by today's message. If you would like more information about Sapona Road Church or would like to give to this ministry, please visit our website at saponaroadchurch.com. We hope you have a great day and enjoy today's message. go with me please to the gospel of John. I'm loving John's gospel. I hope that maybe last Sunday and the last couple weeks something has stirred in your heart and there's been something that's moved in you. Last Sunday was um, a very humbling type of message for me. I call it heavy. Uh, Heavy means that it's one that I don't really want to preach, just to be honest with you. Heavy means that it's not in my character. For me, it's I'm happy. And I would prefer to, to preach God's goodness and grace and mercy and happiness and joy. And, and so to preach something heavy is not always fun, but I believe that it's rewarding. And so if you missed that, be sure to go back and watch that. I believe that you'll be challenged as well. We're following up on the whole conversation that we looked at last week where Jesus has cleared the temple. He's gone in and he's drove out those that have made his house something that it's not. We talked about specifically the fact that the house had been devalued, the worship had been devalued, and the prayer had been devalued. And so Jesus has just finished that up, and that's where our passage really picks up today at the end of chapter 2. And I'm going to be honest, I've got a lot of scripture, and I don't know really how we'll flow through this, whether we'll read it um, or whether I'll just kind of story tell it a little bit. Madeline uh, was sitting on the couch last night. We were uh, watching a movie, and Madeline said, Daddy, what are you reading tomorrow? I said, well, Madeline, to be completely honest with you, I hadn't got it perfectly nailed down yet. She said, I think you should read Romans. I said, okay, Madeline, what do you think I should read in Romans? And I seriously was considering listening to my little girl and thinking maybe the Lord was speaking through her there for a minute. She said, Daddy, I think you should read chapters 1 through 8. I said, baby, I think that everybody would be asleep and they would probably leave and they would be completely bored out of their mind. And Micah shakes her head, yes. (laughs) So I'm not going to read chapters 1 through 8. However, we're going uh, from John chapter 2, verses uh, 23 through where the text I'm covering today is through chapter 3, verse 19. So um, it's about a half a page if your Bible's laid out anything like mine, but please don't fall asleep on me and hang with me. And I believe that there's something here for you, okay? You with me? I'll read this to start with, just this little portion, then we'll kind of walk through this. John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25 says, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many begin to trust him. Now place yourself in this situation. Jesus has gone through and he's just uh, been at the wedding at Cana. We talked about that a couple weeks back where water was turned into wine and he did this fantastic thing. Takeaway for me that day was if you put something in the jar, if you'll do your very best to fill the jar to the brim, Jesus is going to take what you put in, he's going to anoint it, and he's going to bless it, and, it's, and it turns out to be the best that was ever served, okay? So we go from that. Then we go to Jesus showing up at, at the uh, temple and 
he's really ticked off and he's aggravated and maybe you don't like the idea of Jesus being ticked off. I believe Jesus was ticked off. I believe he was mad. I believe he was angry. I believe he was burdened with the fact that the people are, have cheapened. The, they're, they're trying to rob the pilgrims that are coming. And I told you that it was okay that they're selling the sacrifices. It's okay they're exchanging money. All that's part of this because these are pilgrims coming in from way out of town. They're coming into to the temple to offer up their sacrifices. They need a way. You didn't want to bring your cattle um, 90, 80, and 90 miles to Jerusalem to the temple. So it wasn't necessarily that it was a bad thing what they were trying to do. The problem was they're trying to price gouge through the process. They're taking the heart of worship and devaluing it to the fact of trying to make a dollar on the sacrifice. You with me? So Jesus goes in, he cleans the temple, he drives all that out, and now we find this verse picking up where uh, he, Jesus is about to have two different encounters. He's about to have an encounter with Nicodemus, and then he's going to have an encounter with a Samaritan woman. And so this kind of transitions us just a little bit and lets us get a glimpse of how Jesus is approaching this. Because the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at Passover celebration, many begin to trust him. They're seeing something, and now they're believing but Jesus did not trust them because he knew all about people. That statement in itself is a strong statement. If you're a person that has trust issues, chances are you have trust issues because you know all about people, right? You've been hurt. You've been betrayed. You've had somebody that, that has severed a relationship, and you were on the, the bad end of that, the receiving end, and now there's trust issues taking place. And so Jesus, even in, even in his God nature, these people are beginning to trust in him, but he did not trust them because he knows all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. The New American Standard Bible says no one needed to testify of man to Jesus because he knew himself what was in man. That's a more literal translation. He knew what was in man. So keeping that in mind and kind of walking through that thought process, everybody's seeing what Jesus is doing. They're beginning to trust him. Jesus has drawn the line. He's not trusting them. He's not entrusted himself to them because he knows all about people. I don't know all about people. Sometimes I think I'm a halfway decent judge of character. More times I'll lean on the side of the good in people rather than the bad, which sometimes bites me in the rear end, right? So here shows up this religious teacher. Nicodemus shows up, and for some reason, Nicodemus don't even have the guts to show up in the middle of the day. I really don't know why he didn't. I'll say he doesn't have the guts, but he shows up at night. For whatever reason, we see two completely contrasting stories between Nicodemus showing up at night and, and, and then the Samaritan woman uh, meeting with Jesus in the middle of broad daylight. For whatever reason, things have settled down. I can kind of picture uh, that the camps have settled down. People are kind of tucked away in their tent, sitting around a fire, just kind of jiving stories, whatever, singing kumbaya around a campfire. Whatever's taking place, that's when Nicodemus shows up. And Nicodemus shows up and he says, Jesus, what is it that man has to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus, first of all, says, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is a man that knows scripture. He's a religious leader. He's a teacher. And he says, what do you mean? 
how, how, how can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Well, common physics tell us that's not possible. And Nicodemus is questioning this. He's stuck in his mind. He's stuck in, in his own heart, if you will. He's stuck on what is inside of him as he's producing these questions. And Jesus said, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit produces uh, or gives birth to only spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. Verse 8 is an interesting thought to me. I think I touched on it uh, maybe Wednesday night. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. And then he goes on and Nicodemus says, but I don't understand, how is this even possible? And Jesus kind of puts him in his place and he says, you're a respected Jewish teacher, yet you don't understand these things. You should have something within you because of this place that you're at. There should be something. You should be able to understand what's taking place. He said, I assure you, we tell you what we know and what we've seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you earthly things, how can you possibly believe me when I tell you about heavenly things? I think that kind of really applies to us. Because if we miss the small things God's doing, then how in the world would we ever believe he can do the big things in our life? If we miss the simple blessings, if we miss the simple things that God, just simply waking me up this morning and allowing me to be in a place where I could take a breath, even though it might not have been a very good breath, I could take a breath. The fact that I can breathe, the fact that I can think through, the fact that, that God's given me life and he's given me life abundant, little things that add up that we never really stop and think. And I think that, that Jesus is saying, you know, how I can explain these earthly things to you and you don't get it. How in the world would you ever understand the big things? If you can't grasp the little things, if you can't hold on to, to what's lit, what you can actually see, you hear the wind blow, you know the wind's blowing, but you can't see it. The same way the Spirit produces man and the, the Spirit moves in man. And, and Jesus is seeing what's in Nicodemus to the point that he says you don't have the capacity at this point in your journey to accept it. He goes on, he says, no one, in verse 13, no one's ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. This next chunk is where I want us to spend the second part of our time. We know this verse of Scripture. For this is how God loved the world. Or maybe you know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The New Living Translation says, For this is how God, so God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Then this is where it gets interesting. Verse 17 says, God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. God sent his Son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And then listen, there's no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. So what's the judgment? Jesus says, well, the judgment's based on this fact. 
God's light come into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear that their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they're doing what God wants. First of all, just take a pause. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near for their, the fear of their sins being exposed. If you're living in a place of darkness and there's something in your life this has nothing to do with my message, this is a little plug. If there's sin that you know of and you're not willing to step into the light to let it be exposed, I promise you're living in much more bondage by staying under the burden and the conviction of the darkness than you would be if you walked in the truth and the freedom of the light. If you're living in a place where there's sin present and it's holding you captive that you're not willing to step into the light, you're living in more bondage and more conviction than you would ever be if you step into the truth of the light. The truth sets you free, right? Just a thought. So let's look at this just a little bit and walk through. I got three quick thoughts. According to the fancy timer on the wall, I got 21 minutes and 58 seconds to give them to you. Cool with you? First of all, you need to understand Jesus knows you. The little thought that might be in your life that's holding you to the darkness means nothing to Jesus because Jesus knows it's there. Jesus could not trust man because he knew what was in man. All these people saw the signs, which is completely crazy to me because they see the signs and they're trusting Jesus. But then here in just a little while longer, the disciples are losing their minds because they think they're about to be destroyed in a storm. He said, didn't you remember what take, took place? So are they really trusting on a level of trust where they're putting their whole faith and their trust in who God is as the divine son of God? Or are they just trusting on what they can see in the moment? Just a thought. Don't we do that though? Isn't it much more like us to trust on what I can see in a moment? I have zero doubt most of the time. Well, zero doubt. When I walked in this morning and turned those light switches, except that one that's a little, little finicky and sometimes it don't turn on this middle row of lights, I had no doubt that when I flipped those light switches, the lights of the sanctuary were going to come on. Why? Because I've done it over and over and over and over, and what I can see, I believe. And the problem is, Jesus says, Nicodemus, uh, you, you see this thing and you can't even wrap your mind around. If I tell you earthly things and you don't get it, how do you expect to understand heavenly things? And so first of all, we've got to understand the fact Jesus knows us. Jesus didn't know these folks. 
They've watched from a distance. They've watched him uh, braid together a cord and drive out the money changers and drive out the animals. And they've watched and they begin to, to believe and trust in him because of his signs. Not because of his character, but because of the signs. There's times in my life where the signs are not evident. All this thing's coming back together full circle. I have to depend on the joy of the Lord being my strength when I don't see the miraculous sign taking place. When I only trust in signs, there's an entire season of my life that I'm missing altogether in trusting and having faith in what God wants to do. Waiting seasons are terrible. Can I just be honest? I hate them. I feel like that God is the furthest away in those moments because my mind is trained, my eyes are trained to operate on what I can see. I see signs, I see prayers answered, I see God doing what I think God should do in that moment. And these people are trusting in Jesus because they've seen the signs. Jesus won't trust them because he knows all about them. Doesn't have to meet them, you don't have to know their name, there's proof in Nicodemus' story. He said, you're a religious teacher. You're a religious leader. And you don't get this? He spoke his language, first of all. Nicodemus, you need to look in the mirror and realize who you are and you can't grasp this concept. We get to the lady at the well and, and he says, hey lady, go get your husband. Out of the blue, she said, I don't have one. He said, I know, you've had six. How can he do that? Because Jesus knows you. He knows what we say. He knows what we don't say. He knows the things that we shouldn't have said. He knows the things that we might have had enough wisdom to keep inside and not let come out. He knows us. And we forget that fact so often that he loves us. Jesus knows our intentions. He knows our motives. He knows our desires. He knows you and me. The scary thing is he knows me better than I know myself. The marriage relationship teaches me a little bit of that concept, the fact that Micah knows what's going on with me a lot of times before I do. I told you before I got kicks and whims and I just get on this thing and my mind's focused on one thing and Micah just looks at me and smiles. She's like, it's another kick. And when reality kicks in, I'm like, well, yeah, it actually is. But I'm so blinded by me and I'm so blinded by what's on my mind and I'm so blinded by what I want and what's going on that I don't even know myself as well as she knows me. And here we forget that Jesus knows us. His word tells us that he knows what's in man. I like the way the New Living Translation said he knows what's in man's heart. But that was just our fancy translation of encompassing man as a whole. Because he said, John's saying he knew what was inside of man. Doesn't have to be my heart, be my mind, it's my soul. He knows what's taking place in my brain, not just my heart. He knows us. Understanding that walking forward, the second thought is God's intentions are pure. 
His intentions are pure. I love John 3.16. I love preaching on John 3.16. I love twisting John 3.16 out of our normal Christianese thought process and turning it to this evangelical mindset. I I love looking at Scripture and and really kind of reevaluating how we see it. It has nothing to do with the message today, though, because we're going to get 17. We love to be able to say, for God so loved the world, me, when I was broken down, messed up, busted up, disgusted, that he gave his only son for me. True. But so he did for everybody else. The world, not the church. Jesus even said when the disciples are questioning, what about fasting? He said, "Uh, really, you know, does, does, the, does the bride, do they fast when the bridegroom's still present? No, you're going to fast one day later. I came, and he's sitting around the, the table with Matthew and the tax collectors. He said, I really didn't come to redeem the church. I came to save that that was lost. So that's a completely different twist on John 3.16 because we learned it inside and out because it's the foundation of our faith, and it's how I have the faith that I have. But it's not about me. God's intentions were pure. Because verse 17 says, For he didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He didn't send his son to the world to bring judgment. Isn't that opposite of the way our brains operate, though? He didn't bring his son into the world to judge the world, but instead it was that the world might be saved through him. And so the way we rearrange John 3, 16, and we look at it, that God so loved me that he saved me and he gave me this everlasting life and I don't have to go to hell because God loved me. But what does it mean for the rest of the world? God's intentions of sending Jesus were pure, but they're completely different than ours. You look at what society thinks of the church. Culture would tell us that we're judgmental. We're hypocritical. You agree? Everybody outside of the church sees that of the church. John 3.17 said God didn't come to the world, to, didn't send his son to the world to judge the world. But instead that the world through him might be saved. So why is it that everybody else around us thinks that we're judgmental and hypocritical? Somehow they got that message. I'm all about a perceived truth. If we have a conversation, if we have conflict come up and it's something that takes place, it really doesn't matter what the actual truth was, especially in leadership. We're in a relationship like marriage. It doesn't really matter what was said. Or what wasn't said, it's what was perceived on the other end. I could yell at Micah that I love you. Truth is, I said I love you. Perceived truth was she didn't feel that. Right? In her mind, it never happened. Truth depends on, we've talked about it before, truth depends on where you sit, which side of the line, right? Perceived truth is a real thing. And so I don't really care what the truth is about what the church has accomplished in sowing this mentality of judgment and of hypocrisy 
The fact is the perceived truth of society believes we're judgmental and hypocrites. You with me? I don't care how we got there. Whether it's the truth or not doesn't matter. The point is we are viewed as judgmental hypocrites. God did not do that. His intentions were pure. Because we quote John 3, 16, but we don't really like to follow with 17 because it takes this whole concept that we've built. We, we, I told you last week, we want to be mad at the sinners for sinning. Right? We want to be mad at lost people for destroying cities. We want to be mad at lost people for walking in sin. And instantly we put up a judgmental mental block. We're doing, we're human. We do. Which is why Jesus couldn't trust us because he knows what's in man. We put up this, this facade that's completely against the intentions of God. Because his intentions were pure. Not to come to judge the world, but instead to save the world. So how have we as the church, how is it that we've been labeled as judgmental hypocrites when the one we claim to follow came to save the world? Somewhere we're out of line. Because we follow our heart. And we do what our heart says to do. So the third thought is, our heart's not enough. I love, maybe not love, that's a strong word. I sit down and watch mushy movies with Micah and Madeline. McCaden really doesn't care. Every once in a while, there'll be a motorcycle or a car or a horse, and McCaden's fine. We sit down and watch mushy movies. And you've heard the statement, follow your heart, right? Follow your heart. You've got a decision to make. You see this girl that's typical Hallmark movie, good guy, bad guy, out of town, in town. And Mama says, follow your heart. Here's the issue. Jeremiah said that the human heart is the most deceitful thing of all. The human heart is the most deceitful thing of all. And it's beyond a cure. That's what one translation said. The human heart is the most deceitful thing of all and it's beyond a cure. So whenever I'm operating out of the goodness of my heart or I'm following my heart, chances are if it's the, the most deceitful thing, I believe the word of God literally for what it says. You agree? If not, I don't really want to talk about it. I believe it. We'll talk about 1,500 different translations, but I believe the word of God to be true and right. And if the prophet of God, the man of God, said in this book that the heart is the most deceitful thing of all, the very last thing that I should ever, ever, ever follow is my heart. Somebody made a joke because I was talking about roaches crawling around the floor. Lord, have mercy, my microphone's on. 
was talking about roaches crawling around the floor last week that was absolutely crazy. means nothing. I'd be better off following that roach than following my heart. Right? Truthfully. If the human heart is the most deceitful thing of all, I could follow that roach faster than I should follow my heart. Our heart isn't enough. Our heart's messed up. You want to do a checkup on your heart? I ain't got to take you to wake med. Start recording the words that come out of your mouth. That's scary because I listen to me sometimes. Jesus himself said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You need a heart checkup? Listen to what comes out of your mouth. When I listen to me and I listen to negativity sometimes. I'm listening to a book for like the third time now and it talks about the third word, not. I am not. I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not that, I'm not that. It's talking about losing that third word. The words that come out of my mouth determine what's in my heart. And so the, the check for me is, what am I speaking over myself, over my life, over my family, over you people? Right? But yet so often we follow our heart. Jesus said, or he would not even trust the people because he knew all about man and he knew what was in their heart. So how do we earn the trust of Jesus? Check your heart. I'm not talking about checking my heart for the things that need to be got out. I'm talking about checking my heart like you check a coat at the door and you walk away from it. Jesus told Nicodemus, the problem is the heart of the man claims to love the light. The heart of man claims to love light, but it's his actions that keep him in darkness. Where the judgment come from is based on the fact God's light coming to the world. But people love darkness more than they love the light, for their actions were evil. Nicodemus is a religious leader of the church. And Jesus has got him pegged from the moment he walks up. I don't even know that he could even really see who it was until he got up close, but Jesus had already figured it out, run the conversation, knew everything that was about to take place. And Nicodemus shows up. He said, I didn't, I, I didn't come into this world to judge anybody. I came in the world to save the world. We judge ourselves. Jesus said judgment came whenever those people wouldn't step out of the dark and step into the light and let themselves be exposed and come into a relationship with Jesus. Judgment didn't come out of Jesus. Judgment didn't come 
completely unlike the Old Testament, you can see judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment. I'm thankful I didn't live through that. Probably wouldn't have, to be real honest. I'd have been part of those judgments. Burned up a city out of judgment because the people disobeyed. That's not what Jesus was. Jesus was an opportunity that rather than bringing judgment back on the people, Jesus was an opportunity that now if you're judged, now if you're condemned to hell, it's because you do it to yourself. Not because he did it to you. Now if you choose to remain in darkness, you continue to remain in bondage and you continue to remain tied down to whatever the junk is in our life. And now if if I choose to do that, that's on me. That's not on God. That's not on his only begotten son, Jesus. That's on me. That's my problem. Because the heart of God was pure. The intentions of God were pure. He sent Jesus so that the whole world might be saved. But yet we've put off because we're following our heart. And, and especially, I believe, as, as the church of Jesus, we followed our heart. We've, we've stayed in our heart rather than what we're going to follow in a moment. We've stayed in this mentality of our heart. And now here we are. We've put off. My, my little crowd of people sit in this awesome little room. And everybody out there, I can't believe they're acting the way they're acting. They're lost. Those are the ones that God loved the world enough that he sent Jesus for. But yet we put off this message. Whether it's the truth or not does not matter. I don't care. We're not going to argue it back and forth. I didn't say that. I didn't do that. I don't know why they think that way. I don't care. The point is the perceived truth of them and what they think of us is that we're judgmental hypocrites. Okay, how they got there, that's the truth of what they believe. When I started working for Harney County Schools, I intentionally, I didn't even tell nobody I was saved, more or less that I was an ordained minister in the church of God. Months went by only because of a wedding I was going to do for my sister. And we're having a conversation about what you're doing this weekend. I'm going to marry my sister. I'm going to do their ceremony. What? You can do that? There's a lot you don't know about me. Because if I'd have walked in to those conversations and said, I'm an ordained minister of the church. Nice to meet you. There's a wall. Instantly. Because I'm a judgmental hypocrite. I didn't have to say anything. I had some serious theological debates with them cussing down my throat. But they received me because somehow I had twisted this out of this judgmental hypocrite to show them I'm nobody but a person just like you are. That season of my life, I learned a lot. Their heart's not enough, so... How do we operate? Not by my heart. Paul said it like this in Galatians. You know this passage of scripture. But if we're really operating, if we're going to flow, we recognize God knows me. Jesus knows me inside and out. His intentions are pure and my heart's not enough. So how do I switch this? How do I become an open book 
How do I give my heart completely over, but who even cares what's in my heart because I'm not living by my heart anymore? How do I walk in this? Paul said, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. I love this, though. Verse 24 says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and their desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our life. You follow your heart if you want to. I'm checking mine at the door. And I'm going to follow the Spirit's leading. Because my heart's not good enough. My heart's corrupt. It's a mess. Not only is my heart a mess, but because my heart's a mess and because it's deceitful, therefore my brain and my mind and my thoughts and what I allow to come into my mind is then corrupt. Jesus said, I don't trust them. We trust based on our sight. Jesus said, I know what's in them, and I don't trust them. I know this has been simple. I like them simple. Don't you like simple? The word for me that spoke to my heart is, Mitchell, you got to make sure you're not following your heart. Make sure you're not following your heart. Jesus knows the insides and the outs. Everything about me, everything about you is known by him. His intentions are pure. The way that he sent Jesus was completely of pure intentions. And somehow along the lines, it doesn't really matter how, where, when, who. We really goof that up. Because now instead of a people that can offer hope and a people that that those lost people come running to, now we're the judgmental hypocrites. And that's the truth. Maybe not for us, but to them. How do we begin to twist that? How do we begin to change that? I can promise you it's not by following your heart. It's by following the Spirit's leading in our life. The Holy Spirit that's producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Nothing about that says judgmental hypocrite. Nothing. I've never met a person. There's some that are just outright mean. But if you roll through the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, somewhere, it might might take you getting to seven or eight or maybe even nine. Somewhere or another, they break down. And they realize you're authentic because you're not following your heart, but you're following the Spirit. We break the barriers by operating in the Holy Spirit. By making sure that the characteristics of God are present in our life. Would you pray with me, Father? You're a good Father, Lord. We've already sang that. We've celebrated that today. Lord, maybe we believe that in our heart, but maybe it don't go to our mind, or maybe we're not operating 
in our actions that we believe that, God, but I pray, Lord, that there be a divine connection made between your spirit and my flesh. Me as a human being, I pray that there be a connection made and that way down deep inside of me, I accept that you're a good father and that I'm loved. Father, I know that you know me. You know everything about me. You know everything within me. You know my actions. You know my words. Father, I pray that you examine me today. Holy Spirit, I give you permission to begin to show me the things that need to be moved in my life, to show me the attitudes, the words, the, the thoughts that need to be changed. Father, I recognize today that your intentions are pure. When you sent Jesus into this world, the whole purpose was to save the world. Yet, because of selfishness, we focus on 16 and we make it about us. God, your intentions are pure, Lord. Let our intentions to make our, our being, make who we are pure. Let our intentions be pure. Lord, today we recognize that our heart isn't enough. A good, clean, pure heart still isn't enough because even in a moment's time, just like those people trusted based, based on the miraculous signs, they just trusted on what they could see. God, our heart will deceive us in a moment. Father, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Let us operate under the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us walk in humility. God, let us follow the leading of the Spirit in our life. Let our life be a life that bleeds, that oozes out love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and selflessness, Lord, and self-control. God, as our life bleeds and oozes out the goodness of who you are, the lies that have, have been uh, developed and the walls that have been put up against us as people that claim to know you, Lord, they can be broken down by the Holy Spirit. Lord, and I pray that you break those barriers, break those walls. God, so that your kingdom could go forward. That your word could go forward. That your love could go into places where it's not. Lord, that somebody's life could be turned upside down, that it could be changed because we allow barriers to be broken between us and the lost and dying world. Father, I thank you. God, I thank you for every person that's in the house today. Every person that'll watch this recording later, God, I pray that you touch them, you bless them, Lord. God, let them check their heart and follow your spirit. I thank you, Lord. Lord, bless us, keep us. Let your grace shine upon us. Turn your face toward us and give us peace in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.